In this bonus episode of Illegal Tender Season 5, we hear from Austin Smith, who is a lawyer who helps student loan borrowers navigate the bankruptcy process. So you decided to take on this issue of student debt. Yes. Was it immediately after you started your law career? What was your first case? Yeah, so it actually happened. It, it was never something that I had planned. It really sort of came about by happenstance. I was on the law review in my third year of law school. And uh, you have to write a what's called a note, which is just sort of a basically a thesis paper. And was sort of looking for a topic, and someone had put me on to student loans and bankruptcy, which, frankly, at the beginning, did not sound very interesting to me. But I started reading cases, and this was the only thing in student loans and bankruptcy at that time was this undue hardship concept. And as a lot of people have noted, the it's a, it's a very peculiar form of legal proceeding because you know, you're asked to come into court and prove essentially how horrible your life is. And, you know, that's sort of a, that's a strange thing to try to prove in a legal sense, you know, how bad your life is. And they have created this test. In any event, so as I was reading those cases, it sort of occurred to me that there may also be some misapplications of the statute and that it was not quite as broad as uh, a lot of courts had been interpreting it. And in fact, that there were, you know, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars in the in the student debt sort of you know universe that just didn't fit within the law at all and were freely dischargeable and uh, that that was probably something that should get fixed and so i had written the note it got published and sort of hoped that that was going to fix it and it, it it you know no one really read it and no one really cared about it i had then taken a job at a uh, corporate defense firm doing environmental work, but environmental work on the other side of what we generally think of as environmental work, defending companies against environmental claims. And But through their pro bono department, they let me sort of try this out. And so the first case we had done was for a woman named uh, Leslie Campbell, who had one type of these loans. You know, they're, they, the type of debt that does not fit within this statutory regime is what's called a non-qualified loan. And there are, you know, depending on how you want to break out the subcategories, dozens of them, one of which is, you know, a loan for uh, bar exam study. I mean, that's what she'd had. And so we brought her case in the Eastern District of New York, and uh, it was my first time sort of ever being in court or, you know, sort of being a real lawyer, as it were. And, uh, you know, the other, Citibank was the defendant. And uh, very quickly, you know, we're sort of like, what, what? what on earth are you talking about, you crazy person? You know, have you not seen all of the case law that sort of rejects whatever it is you're trying to do here? Fortunately, we were before a judge who I, th- I think did an excellent sort of analysis, obviously, because we won. And had, so she wrote her opinion that got a lot of attention because it sort of had said, wait a second, there's a problem here. This law is not being applied properly. And so they discharged her debt. And I sort of, you know, <laughs> part of this whole story has been about every sort of time something like that happens, I think, okay, now we're done. It's over. It's now fixed. And it just, it just doesn't work that way, I guess. So we won that case and, you know, it got a little bit of attention and then the attention went away and sort of, you know, courts kept doing it. So I eventually sort of quit my job and decided I sort of, you know, was going to take this on more full time and just started sort of, you know, cold calling bankruptcy lawyers and sort of doing anything I could to sort of find more cases. 
And we started doing them in Minnesota and California and Texas and Maine and Massachusetts, sort of anywhere we could find them. And kept winning, and we kept sort of winning and winning and winning and winning. And and that was great because it would help this one person, but it, it, it didn't actually solve the larger problem. And this sort of, you know, I, I do think the media attention sort of helped push back against this narrative that, you know, if you have a student debt, you cannot erase in bankruptcy, which I always have to say is generally true. It's just not always true. And, and that is... You know, unfortunately, kind of an annoying distinction for, you know, to have in sort of just a small conversation because, you know, those sort of exceptions just aren't that important in sort of day-to-day life. But it, it, I think it is important here. And, you know, and it wasn't just the lenders who were doing this. You know, it was the courts and it was it was bankruptcy lawyers. You know, anytime someone would try to sort of address this. And it's what's, I think, fascinating is you know, what we were doing had sort of existed on the fringes of the internet for a long time. You know, you can find chat forums from 2006, 2007, where people are saying these things, because if you just read the statute, it's, it's in some ways quite obvious. And, uh, and then lawyers were chiming in and saying, you don't know what you're talking about, you're not a lawyer. And yet they were right the whole time, which I always think is sort of an interesting lesson. But in any event, so we are still doing it today. We have now prevailed at least at one court of appeals, which is sort of a big watershed moment for any kind of legal movement. And, uh, you know, we started bringing class actions and uh, trying to sort of do other things to sort of solve this larger problem, which, you know, we have sort of benefited in some ways from a lot of the political proposals about mass forgiveness and sort of just erasing all of it. And, you know, what was, I think when we started in some ways, people thought we were pretty radical. Uh, you know, we're now fortunately, our proposal seems pretty reasonable. You know, not even that everyone should be able to discharge it immediately, but that a lot of people just under the law can discharge it. And, and we've also been doing a fair amount of work with the undue hardship to try to sort of restore a little bit of precision to that standard too, which I think certainly a lot of academics and courts have criticized over the you know, last decade is sort of having strayed from the original intent of Congress and and a lot of the decisions that have come out have sort of been a lot more harsh than they needed to be or I think that uh, they were really allowed to be. So it's expensive. Mm-hmm. These kinds of lawsuits, these kinds of yeah. efforts basically, yeah. super expensive. Some lawyers who do your work quote $40,000, $50,000. So clearly this is, you know, something that, is kind of extremely difficult to do. Yeah. So why do you care so much? Where's the passion coming from? I, I mean, <laughs> I guess I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, part of it was maybe sort of kind of intellectual pride in a way. I was, you know, and it, I mean, I've always been kind of an obsessive person. You know, when something gets under my skin, I sort of can't let it go. So that's certainly part of it. But it just, I, I it was, I couldn't, I don't, it, I couldn't really understand how this had happened, you know, that of course, you know, it's an imperfect world and mistakes happen, but it just seemed like an important one for a lot of people. And I just couldn't understand how, if you had made this error and then were confronted with the correct information, why that wouldn't solve that problem. And I guess it's maybe just, you know, being a little bit naive or something. But I did think that it was something worth doing. And I have, you know, I, part of it also was, you know, when I got out of law school, you know, there's a lot of unhappiness in the legal culture. And, you know, the, there are, you know, the traditional path, if you want to sort of 
work at sort of the higher levels of law is generally, you know, you do a sort of clerkship with a federal judge and then you go to a big firm and you spend five or six years, you know, doing, you know, learning how to be a lawyer. And a lot of that is pretty low level stuff. And, you know, sort of the things I did my first two years. But I just thought, all right, well, so if that's how this whole thing is arranged, you know, so you have about six years, seven years, which is sort of, you know, sort of coincides with, you know, when you would become a partner. It sort of seemed to me like, all right, so you have about six years to sort of learn how to do this, and you could either spend it in the more sort of orthodox manner of sort of being at a firm and sort of learning how to be a lawyer that way. But it sort of seemed like, well, I think that if there's an opportunity here to go out and and do this and sort of learn on my own, that seems like maybe I could just do it that way. And it's, it's in some ways, I think it's been true. I mean, I think I have learned in some ways a lot more than I would have. I think I certainly have uh, if I just stayed at the firm. So I guess, you know, I, I wanted to do it. I, w- I was really sort of just committed to uh, this has to get fixed. And it doesn't seem like anyone else really cares to fix it. So, you know, it's, it seems like a small thing. I don't know. It just seems like, all right, well, I'm here. I, I want to fix it. So I guess I might as well try. And... You know, I have, I sort of gave myself, you know, you got about six years before, you, you know, you're supposed to sort of know really what you're doing. And this is as good a way to learn how to do that as any other. And I think that, you know, I mean, and there, the the quoting, that's right. I mean, a lot of lawyers, I, I still don't understand, they do charge like forty to $50,000. You know, there are other ways to sort of make money as a lawyer. I mean, that is the sort of traditional, what's thought of as the defense sort of hourly model. But, you know, there are a lot of statutes that provide for uh, attorney's fees, which means, you know, if you pr- prevail in a case, the other side uh, has to pay you to have done that. And this is how sort of, you know, general plaintiff's practice works, you know, the sort of 30% commission or whatever it is, you know, there are ways that sort of have developed in the legal system where if a client can't pay you by the hour, there are ways to sort of still provide them with legal services. So I sort of started doing that. And and I just, you know, I just, I really just, I do enjoy it. I think it's it's a lot of, it's it's quite fun to sort of just, you know, find sort of little issues that I think are, are, are I mean, what I try to do is find, you know, cases that have little pieces of them that, I sort of think of as a building block. And, you know, if you can win a little issue here and a little issue over here, and over time, you start to sort of build up uh, a framework for a reinterpretation of a law that then can start to withstand, you know, scrutiny. And I just find that sort of a, a an exciting way to practice law. So I want to look at some of your clients, okay? A lot of them have gone through so much because of their student loans. Would you categorize what they're going through as, you know, they're in crisis mode? So do we have a student debt crisis from your perspective? Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's it's partly whatever problem you're working in, I think always seems like the most important one. So I try to be cognizant of that. What's interesting to me is that the people who come to me, you know, I probably get, I don't know, three or four phone calls a day from people all over the country. And they generally fall, they generally have pretty similar characteristics. They have nearly always more than $100,000 in debt, sometimes two, sometimes three, upwards of a million. And they've had two clients who had a million each. And, you know, that is always immediately dismissed as an exception. So in the larger sort of world of public policy, you know, 
they will cite that as an extreme, but that's not what anybody focuses on because that only applies to, you know, 2% of the people. And I think that's a mistake in a lot of ways. Number one, the, the numbers on that are very deceptive. You know, one thing you'll see in bank disclosures is that, you know, of their entire student debt portfolio, only 15, 15%, or no, 5%, I can't, <laughs> I'm already missing it up. You know, let's say it's 10% of people have more than $100,000. And so people immediately say, oh, well, it's only 10%. Let's, let's focus on the 90%. That's what's important. Well, and the first thing you have to recognize is what that's talking about is 10% of the people. Now, when you add up their total amount of debt, it becomes more like 25 to 30% of the portfolio, you know, such that if you have, you know, you range 10 people, uh, nine of them have $1,000 in debt but one of them has $100,000 in debt. I don't think it's fair to say that it's, that it's only a 10% problem uh, because actually that represents a far larger proportion of the total debt. So that's the first point. The second point I find is that they, the, the problem is so much more acute. And you know, so most of my clients are actually current on their federal loans and, and sometimes are quite proud of that. You know, that, look, I've never missed a payment on my federal loans and I don't want to do anything with my federal loans. They're in a payment plan and they're fine but I have $300,000 in private debt at 12% interest. And, you know, I've been through bankruptcy twice and I can't get rid of it and no one will help me. And everyone I talk to tells me there's nothing you can do, which I think is a, I mean, it, in some ways, you know, I think that's the sort of line that always gets me is that, you know, there's nothing you can do. I think that the, you know, like I think that the legal system for all of its flaws is a fundamentally fair system. And I think that there are always, you know, if you have a problem that, well, let me say it this way. And certainly individuals, I think, get mistreated in the legal system all the time. That's certainly true. And that's not just, you know, people, you know, less fortunate people, you know, I mean, sometimes even, you know, juries award enormous damages, you know, for very little injuries, you know, so I mean, there, there are problems. But I think that if there's a systemic problem such that, you know, it is affecting a large number of people and it is just patently inequitable on its face, there probably is a legal solution to that. It's just sort of either being overlooked or sort of not addressed in the right way. And so when people have said, and I hear it over and over and over again, that, you know, I, went, I called every bankruptcy lawyer in my town and they all said there was no, nothing they could do for me. And I think that that is a, just a, a really sort of depressing way to think about sort of life. I mean, I think that there is a way to fix that. There's always going to be some kind of way and it may not be easy, but we can find it. And so, and the other thing, but there's, there's, a, there's a corollary to that, which is that, you know, I try to tell my clients, look, you know, we can probably get you to a baseline of stability here, but, you know, don't, you know, this isn't going to fix everything that's wrong, you know, and, and that's not really my job, or at least how I see my job is that, they come to me with a very acute financial problem. You know, very often, you know, their payments are two thousand or three thousand dollars a month, and the most they can pay is you know two or three hundred or five hundred sometimes. And at that point, you know, your debt is in what's called negative amortization, so it's just growing and growing and growing and growing every month, and you'll never be able to dig out of that. And that's fundamentally what bankruptcy is for, and has been part of our legal system for centuries because of that. That. We understand that, you know, it's a necessary sort of, you know, safety valve and a correction on a financial system that, you know, does a lot of good in a lot of ways and sort of, you know, 
has produced a lot of wealth, but problems happen. And when those problems happen, there has to be some kind of escape valve. And that's what bankruptcy is supposed to be. And so, you know, I think that they, you know, most of the exceptions to discharge in bankruptcy have to do with two things. One of them is sort of what we might think of as immoral acts, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, but also, you know, failing to pay child support and, you know, injuring someone in a malicious way if you have to sort of pay them for the restitution. And so, and I think those make a lot of sense. The second kind are debts to the government. You know, there is, you know, death and taxes, you know, sort of the only two things we can't get away from. And so those sort of make some sense. Student loans are in this sort of bizarre category, you know, they pro they began as a government debt. And so they sort of fit within taxes. This is why you can't discharge them because you have to pay back the government. It was only really later that I think they sort of moved into this moral category where people said, you know, these kids are trying to cheat the system. And that, that had always been present, but it, I don't think it was as pronounced as it has become. And I think the problem with that sort of conception of it is that I mean, in some ways, you can characterize everyone in bankruptcy as trying to cheat the system. I mean, they did sign a contract to repay a debt, and now they are not able to do it. But we don't – that's not cheating the system. That's, you know, life happens, and sometimes, you know, you can't sort of always honor all of your commitments, and that's okay. And there's a place to go to do that, and it's called bankruptcy court. So I do think that they at some point need to revisit that because – um, especially when they change the law to give private lenders protection – you know, at that point, well, it, that's not a government issue. I, I still don't think it's a moral issue. So what is the justification for this? And, and the only one they can always come up with is it keeps interest rates down. And my response to that has always been, but that's just an argument against bankruptcy because, you know, if you want to keep interest rates down, well, then, you know, bankruptcy affects credit cards in the same way or personal loans. So that can't be the reason because we have already – talked about that 300 years ago and decided that as important as it is to keep interest rates down, it is more important to ensure that when people get into serious financial trouble, they have a way out and they have a way to sort of start their life over again and sort of get a clean slate and, and, and try again. And that I think is just so fundamentally important and is something that I am quite serious about that, you know, especially when, you know, I mean, a lot of my clients, you know, they're not without blame in some of this. I mean, you know, some of them took on way too much debt that they really shouldn't have, you know, but they were 20 years old and they didn't really sort of know what they were doing. And I can understand. It. I mean, I did things like that myself. And so, and, but this constant attempt to, to sort of say, you know, everybody else gets a second chance except you, I find really offensive and something that I am sort of stubborn enough about that, um, I'm, I have decided that, you know, I will do what I can to try to sort of fix that. And so far, we've had, you know, some pretty good success in it. So two questions in this one. And, you know, feel free to answer in any order. But what has been the most depressing case that has come to you? You yeah. know, like something that has really upset you and you really thought that this was true injustice. Yeah. And who do you think are should be held responsible for these kinds of situations. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, I've I've had, I had a client once who, you know, had been through bankruptcy and had some of these debts that were dischargeable. And, you know, I, the, the, the industry, I, 
you know, certainly argue in, in, when I'm in court is that this is, you know, this is news to a lot of people. This is not news to the industry. And, uh, you know, and so these debtors will get out of bankruptcy. So my client had gotten out of bankruptcy and, you know, had been just getting hounded for years to repay on debt that was discharged and that I alleged the industry knew was discharged. And, uh, you know, at one point it got so bad, she was getting probably five or six phone calls a day. And she was, and the other thing people sort of forget is, or maybe they don't forget, but I sometimes, I certainly need to remember it, is that, you know, it's, I, I try to remember that, you know, a lot of these people, you know, by the time they get to bankruptcy court, they are, they're really at their wit's end. And they do not have the same resiliency that I think people sort of talking about the problem do. And I, I try to remember that because, you know, that, sh- that, that type of stress, especially if you have a family and you find yourself, you know, unable to, you know, provide for sort of their you know, necessities in some way, you know, that really takes a toll on someone. And, and, and that's where bankruptcy, you know, you go to bankruptcy and then you're hoping you walk out sort of free of all that debt. And in these situations, they don't. And so they sort of go into bankruptcy and it doesn't stop. And, you know, three years out of bankruptcy, the, the calls are still coming. And they, you know, really begin in a lot of cases, you know, to, to, to you know, really break down. And so one of my clients, you know, the calls were just never stopping. And you know, there was no way she could pay this, nor was she legally obligated to. I mean, on one of the calls with the collectors, you know, she sort of said, so that's it. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to, she's threatened suicide. And, uh, and the police came and sort of, you know, calmed her down. And, uh, and the, the, the collection agent had, had made the phone call to the police to sort of knew about this and did the right thing. You know, I think we can all agree that no matter, you know, if you're faced with that sort of statement from someone, you know, you try to do something. But the calls started again 12 hours later, which I th- just found just beyond unconscionable. And, you know, the, 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 the response to that I, I get from some people when I tell that story is that, well, she owed the money. And, you know, first, she didn't. But second of all, I think that there is, there's an aspect of this that I find troubling, which is that, you know, when there, and, and I've heard judges say this too, which is that, look, um, and I don't mean to get sort of too political here, but, you know, there is a fundamental sort of a certainly policy position that, you know, the, the market works and that the market makes rational decisions. And I think that, you know, sometimes these situations really highlight some of the, the fallacy of that, which is that, you know, if you're calling someone 10 times a day that you know, and they know this, only makes $36,000 a year and asking them to repay a $200,000 debt uh, that is accruing interest at 12%, that's not a rational economic decision, you know, and, and because very often the, the, the response is, can I get into a payment plan? And I will say, sometimes they do agree to that. And so sometimes, you know, it works, but a lot of times it doesn't. And, you know, sometimes we'll be in court and a judge will say, I don't understand. What do you think you're going to get from this person? They, they can't pay this. It's impossible. And so I think that, you know, some of those stories just – you know, and look, that's a problem that I, I think is far beyond you know, my ability to sort of solve. But in those situations, you know, what can feel like, you know, kind of a, 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 a hopeless task, you know, I think can at least, you know, the way at least I try to think about it as well, you know, we can, we can sort of help at least one person here, the person standing in front of me, sort of get, get away from this, this type of abuse. And, you know, yeah, there's probably 
100,000 people out there that we can't help. But I do think that if we could just sort of, and it sort of always brings me back to why we have bankruptcy. It's for these situations, you know, when you have someone in this sort of bizarre Kafkan situation where they are being asked to pay a debt, yes, that they borrowed, but which they fundamentally could never pay no matter what, you know, absent sort of winning the lottery. And so we just need to restore that right in some ways to people, or that ability to deal with that problem. And that's what's sort of, I think, been taken away here that sort of just for whatever reason, I can't, I can't let go. Mm. So the question, you had a question? Yeah, yeah. Should, is it about, so no, it, I guess um, I understand this. Yeah. The fact that this loan gets discharged, but Navient doesn't think, it, think right. it's discharged. Can right. you explain that? Yeah. Is that what we were yeah, talking so, about? I'm just thinking like explaining the overall process. Yeah, right, yeah, to, yeah. To some, you know, so, right, yeah. So, it's, you know, as simply as I can, you know, student loans started out as just government money. And the reason for that was an 18-year-old with no credit score and no work history cannot qualify for any type of loan, let alone the type of loan you would need to go to a school that costs, you know, $30,000 or more. And so the government said, all right, well, we, have, we, wanna, we want to promote uh, college education for everybody. So we will we'll subsidize it. And so that was the beginning of the, the, the Higher Education Act, where they said, right, we're going to put aside a lot of money to make sure this happens because we think this is important. And the sort of corollary to that was that, okay, well, if we are going to give these people, these kids, access to credit that they otherwise would not be able to get from a bank, um, and it's taxpayer resources we're using, there's, they called it this, the quid pro quo. They said, all right, so we're going to give you low-interest loans. Um, and they're going to be on very sort of, you know, fair payment plans. And you're going to have all sorts of ways to sort of get it forgiven, work as a teacher, all that. But you can't discharge it in bankruptcy. And in 1978, that was sort of okay because, number one, the loans were really small. And number two, it was only for five years. So, you know, what they were saying is, look, we don't want you to graduate from college and then immediately go into bankruptcy court. And then the next day, get a job at Goldman Sachs. And now all of a sudden, you just sort of made the taxpayers pay for your college education, and now you're a rich investment banker. That's not fair. But after five years, you get your bankruptcy sort of ability back. And so I think at that time, that was, a, that was not a bad system. The problem was as the higher education act got bigger and bigger and bigger, and there were more and more colleges, it got more and more expensive. And as that happened, they said, all right, well, five years isn't long enough. Let's make it seven years. And then seven years isn't long enough. Let's make it indefinite. And that was sort of the big change in 1998 when they said it's going to be, this is for life. This is not just for seven years. And, but even that still was in some ways okay because it was still just federal debt. And, you know, the federal debt for all of its problems, you know, these, the income-based repayment plans are in some ways very fair. I mean, the idea that, look, you never are going to have to pay more than 15% of your sort of income or what, I, I don't know exactly, it's 15 to 20 or some, and sometimes I think it's only 10, but you're not going to lose your house when you're only paying 10 or 15% of your monthly income. And so, and you know, after 20 years, it's forgiven. And yes, I know there are tax consequences and all that. But so from 1978 to 1998, we have this system where federal student debt can't be erased and um, in bankruptcy for a certain amount of time. But it has these very sort of, you know, low interest rates and, and equitable payment plans that sort of make it okay. Then in 2005, they added a provision that gave private lenders limited protection. Um, and the reason for that was because private lending had gotten big in probably about 2000, 2001, 
private lenders started making $10 billion a year in loans, then 15 and $20 billion. So it became a huge market. But they were making a lot of loans outside what the federal government was making. You know, the federal government will only make loans to what are called qualified schools for eligible students for no more than what's called the cost of attendance. And so, but the private lenders were making loans to people at, you know, unaccredited for-profit schools, and they were making loans to students for $40,000, $50,000 over what they needed to go to school. And you can sort of talk about these things in different ways. It essentially, what they are, it's just, that's just unsecured consumer debt in my mind, in a lot of people's minds. You know, if you're attending a college or, you know, a for-profit college that's not even accredited by the state, that's not a student loan in the way that it, that's defined in federal law, you know. So there's this distinction between a student loan, as we think of it, which is really just any debt incurred by a student. But as you start to pick that apart, it gets problematic. I mean, is, he, is it a credit card that a student has, a student loan? Um, I mean, that's a debt incurred by a student, but no one would argue you couldn't erase that in bankruptcy. And so in 2005, Congress said, all right, well, it's going to be all federal loans, and it's going to be what are called qualified education loans, which are private loans that mirror the federal lending program. And they said, so as long as you're making loans within that universe, they're going to be non-dischargeable. That's kind of confusing and, you know, kind of boring. And so people just said, yeah, 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 but just student loans, right? Like, that's close enough. And in a lot of ways, it is close enough because, you know, 90% of all things we call student loans are these federal qualified education loans. And again, we get to this 10% problem. Well, only 10% fall outside that. Well, sure, but you know, 10% of $1.6 trillion is a lot of people and a lot of money. And so the, the extent, the simple explanation is there's a difference between what's called a student loan and what is called a non-dischargeable educational debt in bankruptcy. Those are not the same thing. There is a, you know, the Venn diagrams of that overlaps quite a bit, but there are millions of people that fit within that 10% that fall outside those categories that have tens of billions of dollars in in, in debt. And it is the most acutely detrimental debt because it doesn't have any of the protections of these federal programs. And so that's sort of, you know, the, 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 the vast majority of my clients sort of fit into that sliver that, you know, to an outside observer looks quite small, but it's actually enormous. Does that make sense? And so you get three, four calls a day, which means that you and your clients and your story represents like a way out for so many people because Congress is not doing anything. I don't know what the executive branch is doing, right? So how do you respond to these people? I mean, do you turn them away or like do you give them other opportunities? I mean, so, you know, most of the time I, well, you know, it's, it's, it's quite proportional to sort of the demographics generally, you know, so. Half of them come from California, or not half, but, you know, a lot of them. And so over the years, I've sort of built up relationships with, you know, sort of bankruptcy lawyers in not everywhere, but in a lot of the sort of major cities. And, uh, you know, if someone from California calls me, you know, I will send them to, you know, someone I know in L.A. or, or San Diego or San Francisco, who I sort of have, uh, you know, sort of, sort of, you know, it's not a sort of formal network, sort of assembled this sort of patchwork of sort of lawyers who who can do a lot of this. And uh, when it's a particularly hard one, you know, I'll sometimes sort of, you know, come in as what's called, you know, uh, pro hoc vice counsel and sort of litigate the case for them. 
And so it's not a perfect system, but and a lot, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, if I get a call from someone in Idaho or, or Nebraska, you know, I'll have to say, look, I'm really sorry, you know, I'm not a Nebraska lawyer, I'm not an Idaho lawyer, and I don't know anyone there who I can refer you to, you know, and try back in six months, maybe I will know someone by then. But that's also why we have the class actions is that we are hoping that we can sort of address this on a more systemic level. They take a long time, unfortunately. But, you know, sometimes when people will call who will be included in that if we are successful. And so sometimes the response is, you know, just you know, I give them the case number and I'm like, you know, check back in. But, you know, if you want to follow this, you know, I, I, it's going it, to it's like watching paint dry. But so I, I hope that that will one day sort of be, get you the relief you need. <laughs> it is watching like paint dry, <laughs> yeah. following your bros and yeah, God. Did you have a question? Yeah, no, in your mind, is yeah. there one person or one entity that you can blame for this entire student debt fiasco that has happened? Because we don't see it in other countries. Yeah. I don't know that there's a single person. I mean, the, the two largest problems that I deal with are against Navient and a sort of a, a collection of asset-backed securities called the National Collegiate Trust. And I would say, you know, out of the ten, you know, I get 10 phone calls, six will be from people with Navient loans, three will be from people with National Collegiate Trust loans. And one will be sort of, you know, all other. So that is certainly the sort of two entities that what, what happened was until 2010, pretty much every major bank that you've heard of was involved in student lending. I mean, this was because when the government set this up, they wanted this kind of public partner, public private partnership where the banks actually made the loans and the federal government just guaranteed them. And so all, a lot of banks did this. I mean, you know, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, and they, they were sort of, they were what were called eligible lenders under the Higher Education Act. And they also made private loans sort of like, you know, on the side. In 2010, Obama actually shut that down. I mean, it had been, it had been sort of, people had been criticizing it for a long time, that it was inefficient. And that I think the, I don't remember the exact number on this, but I think like all the banks got a 5% origination fee or something like that. And so it was, it was costing a lot of money. And Obama said, this is crazy. We're on the hook for all this anyway. Why are we paying other people sort of, you know, why are other people getting rich on this? So he brought it all in-house, which means, you know, now since that time, all loans are made directly by the Department of Education. And so at that time in 2010, most of the banks said, all right, we're done with this. If we can't be part of the Higher Education Act, then we're not going to make private loans either. And so they left. And at that time, you know, Navient you know, essentially just sort of, you know, the, the, the market was left to them. But there's a couple other banks, you know, Wells Fargo is still in it and Discover, like Discover Card is actually also just a financial institution and they still make them. But that's really sort of it, you know, you, you, what, what was at one time, you know, 30 different lenders is now, you know, three or four for the most part. You can probably still try to get one of these from your local bank. I don't know. I mean, maybe they still make them. I'm not quite sure. But for the most part, this is a, this is a national collegiate student loan trust and Navient problem. And that is who, you know, most of the litigation is with. Oh, it's interesting that National Collegiate one, it ended up with someone even going to jail, at, almost going to jail, right? The Who's York, that? I don't know. The New York Times story said. Oh, yeah. So they got right. There was. <laughs> Which is interesting to me. Yeah, they, they've had, you know, it was, they were, I mean, and, and that's kind of representative of sort of the problem in some ways is that, you know, in 2007, the Senate launched a major investigation into private student lending. 
and all these hearings and you know there's a lot of posturing because there had you know a lot of these sort of scandals had grown up where sort of you know people were paying kickbacks and charging these exorbitant interest rates and so the Senate kind of came in and, and, and did a pretty good job shutting it down. And actually, Gov- uh, Governor Cuomo was sort of the first one to do that when he was the AG of New York. He sort of launched this investigation that led to this sort of national sort of scandal. And so at that time, and this is sort of right before Obama, and probably I don't know if it had anything to do with it, it may have shut, it, shut down this sort of public-private partnership. But so in 2007, they essentially shut all this down. And so you can, you know, private lending still exists today, but not nearly in the form it did in 2005 when it was, you know, I think there were a lot of articles that call it the wild west of, of lending. I mean, it was exactly like the mortgage crisis in that people were or banks were making enormous loans to people that there was no way they were ever going to be repay them and then securitizing them into uh, asset-backed securities and selling them to investors. And so in 2007, the Senate shut it down, essentially, in a variety of ways. And so everyone kind of said, all right, the problem's over, right? We're done. And the problem was, of course, that, well, yes, you have stopped the problem, but there is $150 billion in this stuff now out in the market. And these kids were either in school, and a lot of them were like seniors in college. So they get out of college and, you know, a couple years go by, and now you are starting to see what you know, what everyone sort of forgot about, which was that you knew how bad this was in 07 and you stopped it, but you didn't realize that, you know, that stuff was still sort of growing in the marketplace. And, you know, the balances were just getting enormous. And so the National Collegiate Trust was sort of one of these entities that sort of gathered up all of these enormous private loans and sold them off to investors. And uh, the New York Times had done a story, I think in 16 or 17, um, about the federal government had done an investigation into them, primarily for, you know, abusive conduct in state court litigation where they, you know, because these people can't pay these loans. The default rate, I believe, was 50 percent, which means 50 percent of the people, you know, defaulted. And so when you default, one of the risks is they're going to sue you in state court and garnish your paycheck. And they were going into state courts all over the country and they were filing lawsuits to collect on these debts. And they really like couldn't prove they owned it or, you know, they didn't own it or, you know, the sort of, you know, anytime you have one of these situations where, you know, person A makes a loan, sells it to person B to C to D to E to F, you know, we all know, you know, something gets lost in each of those transactions. By the time it gets to person F, you have the wrong social security number or you have, you know, the, the you got the wrong person or you got the wrong amount or, you know, all of these problems. So the CFPB had sort of sued them about that. And the New York Times did a big story. And then what happened was all of the hedge funds that own little pieces of these things objected to the, the settlement, essentially. You know, they had settled and said, all right, we'll stop doing this and we'll pay restitution and we'll agree that you know, we're only going to sue people that we're sure we own their loans. And unfortunately, because the, all the financial institutions that owned little parts of it objected, the settlement never happened. It is still being litigated today, and it will go on for 10 years. And so that just essentially is a very clever way, an expensive way to stop the implementation of reform. And so that didn't fix anything, actually. It's still going on today. And, you know, we have been trying. We were actually in Maryland yesterday at the legislature on a bill that some people had worked on that I was sort of testifying about to try to sort of create some state sort of what we call guardrails to stop this. 
And it was interesting. I was testifying and the, the vice chair of the committee said, well, Mr. Smith, but at the end of the day, don't they owe the money? And and that is, you know, you always hear that. And I, and I said, you know, the problem is, you know, with all due respect, that question is the problem because number one, I don't know. I mean, there are examples where no, the answer is they don't. But, you know, if you ever asked a corporation, you know, okay, but didn't you do it? You know, there would be a hundred corporate lawyers standing in front of that person saying that's a violation of their due process rights. You don't get to ask someone that. That's not how the legal system works. And so I think that, but there's this, there, there is this, this impulse to sort of deal with debtors in this sort of kind of commonsensical, you know, let's just be sort of practical about this way that isn't, you know, not to be sort of academic about it, but is, is a very disguised way of eviscerating their due process rights and would never be accepted by a corporation. I mean, you know, when we're talking about the paint drying on the wall. This is largely because we have a legal system that works in such a way that these things take time. You have to prove your case. You have to demonstrate these things. It's not enough to walk into court and say, come on, but we all know it's true. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. And so, you know, we are trying to convince the state legislatures that we need to put some sort of, you know, the, 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 the creditors can't just walk into court and demand a judgment on a debt. And when asked, are you sure it's this person? Are you sure this is how much they owe? You know, say, oh, come on, don't waste, let's not, let's not waste everybody's time with that. And, and so we're trying to sort of, I don't mean to sort of get off topic, but that has been some of the things we're trying to do is that, you know, and we're not asking for a, a ton. It's just that, you know, for instance, you know, I mean, there's a case that came out of Montana, Montana Supreme Court, I think last year, where it turned out that the National Collegiate Trust had uh, obtained a judgment on a debt. It was the right person, but it was for like twice as much as he owed. And it was only because the judge took the time to look through the paperwork that had been filed that actually showed this. And most of the time, they don't look through it. But the judge looked through it and said, wait a second, you filed an affidavit in my court saying this person owed $50,000, but they only owed $30,000. Um, and you're now garnishing their check on a judgment that was obtained by fraudulent means. And, and that is what happens when you don't sort of have these due process things in place for debtors. And the, the biggest problem with that is that 90% of debtors, they get a notice that they've been sued. And it's terrifying. They don't know what to do. Most lawyers won't help them. And so there's supposed to be this sort of process in place where judges are not going to grant a judgment against a debtor who has not showed up unless there is some what's called prima facie evidence that you actually owe this debt. And sometimes those the courts are overworked and, you know, they file the hundreds of these things at a time. And there's an impulse and, you know, to just say, all right, you know what, let's just stamp them all. I mean, we're sure they're all probably good enough because as you know, the vice chairman said, we all know they owe it. <laughs> but, you know, if you if you make them show up and prove each one, it you will find out that actually some of the people aren't the right people and some of the amounts aren't the right amounts. And that is, you know, another sort of issue that has grown out of this, just sort of trying to, again, not solve the whole problem, not fix everyone's life. But look, there's got to be there's got to be a, some sort of fundamental equity on both sides of this, you know. Just as it's, you're not allowed to just assume that, you know, a criminal defendant in court, well, we all know he did it, so let's just sort of get to the end of this. 
You know, that doesn't work for people that have rich lawyers, and it shouldn't work for, you know, people that don't have lawyers at all either. And we would, to the extent we're able to sort of put a little bit of protection behind those people, we think that'd be a good thing. Okay, so we're running out of time. But this is the last question, short, short summary of what is the biggest misconception about this problem that you want to debunk through your work? So I'm going to be very sort of concise about this. There is a difference between student loan is a made up term. It is not a legal term. It doesn't have any meaning anywhere. So when we talk about student loans, that is not a recognized universe of debt. There are qualified education loans and there are non-qualified education loans. And those are very different things. And that's really important uh, if you are struggling under an enormous amount of debt because the only way you can get into that much debt is either being a doctor or having non-qualified debt for the most part. Number two, when you go through bankruptcy, it erases all of your debt that is not non-dischargeable. And it doesn't matter what it says on the document. You can put the word student loan on anything you want. That doesn't mean it's not erased. And so that if you have been through bankruptcy and you have this type of debt, it was erased. It happened by what's called operation of law. And we are trying to sort of drive home that point that if you are paying on that debt, you shouldn't be, and they should give you your money back. Legal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Arthi Swaminathan. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.